Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss lung cancer and the role of surgery in this era of personalized medicine. If you were to take patients who are diagnosed with lung cancer that's spread outside of the chest, the uh, survival for those patients has doubled, in some cases tripled, over the last 20 years due to new drugs. Then we'll ponder whether physicians should render medical care on airplanes. How comfortable does a physician like myself? I've been in administrative duties for almost 30 years. Do I feel comfortable getting up and, and doing something about it? And we'll speak with some authors and the editor of Upstate's literary journal, The Healing Muse. They do feel that medicine gives them such an opportunity to be of use. It's quite, quite humbling for us. Stick with us for HealthLink on Air right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a bioethics professor ponders the legal and moral responsibilities of doctors rendering medical care on airplanes. Then the editor of a literary journal and two authors share some of the work that's featured in the new edition of The Healing Muse. But first, a thoracic surgeon and researcher from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center talks about surgery for lung cancer in the age of personalized medicine. Many factors help surgeons and their patients decide whether lung surgery and what type is appropriate when a cancerous mass is found in the lung. Here to talk about how personalized medicine is affecting the decision-making is Dr. Valerie Roosh. She's Vice Chair of Clinical Research in the Department of Surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and she was in Syracuse recently to give a lecture at the Upstate Cancer Center on the subject of lung cancer and the role of surgery in the age of personalized medicine. Thank you for being here, Dr. Roosh. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's start by having you define what personalized medicine is. I've heard that term used in relation to an individual's genetic code, but is it more than that? Or is that pretty much? Um, That's definitely the way it's used most frequently, sometimes called precision medicine. Precision medicine. That's the other term that's used and uh, basically applies not only to cancer but to many other diseases. It really um, revolves around the concept of utilizing uh, biological information about whatever the condition is to uh, appropriately select patients for treatment and to um, focus the best treatment on their particular disease. So the personalized comes from meaning that it's very individualized to that particular person. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, that's interesting. In terms of lung cancer, yeah. um, is it a different disease in different people? Absolutely. I, we used to think of lung cancer as a single homogeneous entity so one disease, but now we really understand that it's lung cancers, plural, and that um, tumors behave very differently in different patients. Wow. So how do you begin with someone who comes in with a lung mass? How do you determine which type of lung cancer they have? And it, it, maybe they have one that hasn't been identified before, right? Right. Well, um, part of our initial evaluation involves doing a biopsy. Uh, there are different ways of doing a biopsy, but whether it's a needle biopsy 
or a bronchoscopy where we look down inside the airways and get a sample. And then uh, the evaluation of that biopsy is made by a pathologist. But in the last decade, the level of complexity and sophistication that pathologists use to categorize the type of lung cancer has changed tremendously, and that in turn has uh, significant implications for how we treat patients. So it's more detailed? More detailed, and also increasingly lung cancers at diagnosis are undergoing what's generally known as molecular profiling, which is basically a study of the genetics of that uh, individual tumor, and that can inform not only treatment with uh, chemotherapy or immunotherapy, but also surgical management. Well, I was going to ask, are all lung cancers treated surgically? Do they all need to be removed in some way? Is surgery always a part of it? Actually, surgery is is, uh, only applicable to a minority of lung Mm -hmm. cancer patients. Unfortunately, the majority of patients are still diagnosed when the tumor's advanced. Now, that is changing through the use of lung cancer screening with uh, CT scanning. And so uh, we certainly now see many, many more patients who have very small tumors that are not causing any symptoms. And those you can have a surgical... And those are best treated with surgery, or at least surgery is the mainstay of treatment. Okay. And then there's different ways to do the surgery depending on how much you're going to remove or remove the whole lung or a section or... Yeah. Well, we rarely need to remove lungs, entire lungs any longer. Uh, For instance, the institution where I work, only 5% of patients need to have an entire lung removed. So we we actually try not to do that. Um, As we deal with smaller and smaller cancers, there's now a lot of interest in doing uh, uh, removing less lung. In some cases, we don't take out an entire section of lung. Um, The standard operation for early lung cancers for the last two or three decades has been what's known as a lobectomy, which was removing a section of lung. That's still sort of the the gold standard, Uh, but there are definitely situations where we see very small tumors that can have uh, other operations appropriately where we can conserve lung tissue. Even smaller amount. Yeah. Is there a difference between a cancer that originates in the lung and how it's treated and a cancer that spreads from somewhere else in the body to the lung? Yes, in general, the cancers that originate somewhere else and have a tendency to spread to the lung would be, if they're discovered at that point, they would be considered um, metastatic uh, or advanced cancers, but they are not considered primary lung cancers. They, you try to determine what the site of origin, what the organ was that the cancer originated them. Having said that, Uh, We now understand that uh, the biology of specific cancers is is sometimes, but not always, linked to which organ it originated in. So one of the interesting aspects of these uh, studies of genetic abnormalities in individual tumors or molecular profiling is the discovery that uh, tumors that originate in one organ may share the molecular profile of tumors originating somewhere else. Interesting. And so now when clinical trials are done, sometimes we do uh, trials that are called basket trials, uh, in which the 
selection criteria for being tested, testing a new treatment in that trial is based not on the site of origin of a tumor, but on the uh, molecular abnormality of that tumor. Wow. Wow. That's an, and we wouldn't have known that without the personalized medicine. Being exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Do you find that patients these days are coming to appointments more informed, or do they are they surprised to hear words like molecular profiling? Do they sort of come in expecting that, or I think that uh, that there's been enough um, information and publicity in the lay press of, that patients do arrive uh, asking very appropriate questions about. Uh, genetics of the tumor, about molecular profiling, about different types of treatment. They come in asking about uh, treatments like immunotherapy, which um, they've heard about or read about in, in the lay press. Okay. All right. So a little more informed or have a, have more questions maybe yes. to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I wanted to have you talk about what personalized medicine is doing in terms of like survivability and recurrence? Is it having an impact on, you know, the survivability of lung cancer? Uh, Very definitely. So if you were to take patients who are diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, in other words, lung cancer that's spread outside of the chest, uh, the uh, survival for those patients has doubled, in some cases tripled, over the last uh, 20 years due to new drugs and a better understanding of how to use those drugs. Hmm. Okay, and that comes from the genetic profiling? Exactly, and... yeah, which really started uh, in the early 2000s, around 2004 is when the molecular revolution, as it's often referred to, um, started out, uh, particularly in respect to lung cancer. So there's some types that respond better to some drugs than others? Exactly. Based on what type it is you pick? Exactly. And for patients who have uh, advanced or metastatic lung cancer when they're diagnosed, uh, some at least uh, elementary form of molecular profiling is now considered standard of care because it helps the oncologist pick the drugs. So based on the mutations or the genetic abnormalities that are identified in an individual tumor, the oncologist can make a determination about which drug is most appropriate. That's called targeted therapy. And uh, targeted therapies have been around now for more or less a decade. There are an increasing number and increasing variety of them as we've gained more knowledge about the specific abnormalities in lung cancer. And then this latest new kid on the block, so to speak, is a form of immunotherapy, a group of drugs that... um, enhance the immune system and help address the problem uh, that's been around, been sort of the lifelong bane of the oncology community, which is the fact that most cancers evade the surveillance of our immune systems. But these new drugs help to uh, allow our immune system to recognize that there's a cancer that needs to be attacked. And they uh, address uh, specific um, pathways through which uh, immune surveillance can be um, ameliorated or improved. Has that, that seems like kind of a revolutionary concept. Has it? It it absolutely is. I mean, it's turned the oncology community on its head. I I, I was looking at the clinicaltrials.gov website recently, which is the 
uh, website that's used to register all clinical mm -hmm. trials. A lot of patients go to this website when they're looking for clinical trials, by the way. And uh, as of August of this year, there were over 250 lung cancer trials alone testing new forms of chemotherapy, and there are about 15 trials that are Sorry, in forms of immunotherapy. immunotherapy. Uh, and there are about 15 trials ongoing that are testing the uh, use of immunotherapy in combination with surgery for patients who have tumors that we can remove. Wow. So wow. this is really uh, moving away from just being used in metastatic cancer to also being used in uh, earlier stage lung cancers. Wow, very interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Valerie Roosh, a thoracic surgeon from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, who recently gave a lecture at the Upstate Cancer Center. Um, so I wanted to ask what your message, what message you share with oncologists and surgeons uh, today when you speak with them. What's sort of your message that you bring? Well, I think this is an incredibly vibrant time in which to be um, treating lung cancers and other forms of cancer. Uh, I mean, literally, on a nearly weekly basis, we have major developments in the treatment of lung cancer and, and many other cancers that are related to a better understanding of the biology of these tumors and a rapid drug development um, and the uh, information that's coming forward from clinical trials. It's actually a very exciting time because, uh, you know, we went through a period of nearly 30 years when not much was changing in our standards of care, and we're now in an era where uh, there's a, a lot going on and a lot of improvements. Do you see um, new doctors gravitating to this field because of the excitement that there's, you know, more to learn, more that's happening, more hope to offer, that sort of thing? Uh, I think in, in particularly in uh, uh, medical and radiation oncology, there's a tremendous exciting, but it, excitement, but there's also a lot that affects the surgical management of patients, and it's extremely important that uh, we as surgeons be involved in the clinical trials that are going on in this area, uh, in the, in the uh, sort of incorporation of uh, what we call multimodality treatment, which is combining uh, treatments other than surgery, uh, along with surgery, in the treatment of our patients. And so surgery may not always be the first thing that's done, or, or the thing that's done at all, but there may be another therapy that's tried first and then surgery? So the, yes, there, there are really two ways that uh, cancer drugs, whether it's chemotherapy or immunotherapy or targeted therapies, are used in conjunction with surgery. There's something called neoadjuvant therapy or induction therapy, which means those drugs are given to the patient before surgery. And then adjuvant therapy, which means that they're given after surgery. Okay, all right. Well, um, what do you believe the future holds with regard to treatment of lung cancer? If you had to fast forward, um, what do you see on the far horizon? Is we've already I, I, lowered the or in, improved the survivability quite a bit. Will that continue to? Oh, believe? I I think so. I, I think so. This is uh, but there's a combination. What's improved the landscape here is a combination of prevention through public health smoking cessation efforts, which have been pretty successful in in this country. Although we have still a lot of room to for improvement right. in that area, 
but are really um, important to pursue in the developing in developing countries around the world where, where smoking been, is still smoking is uh, very prevalent. Um, so that's partly that, which has changed the landscape. It's partly screening for lung cancer. So it's sort of analogous to getting a mammogram or a pap smear or having a colonoscopy. It's the same kind of <laughs> early detection, uh, which we now know improves survival, decreases mortality uh, in patients with lung cancer. And then um, this whole era of personalized medicine where we can make decisions about treatment, be that uh, surgery, drug treatment of some sort, uh, or to some extent even radiation treatment based on individualized uh, treatment of the patient and understanding the biology of the tumor in that particular patient. And being able to predict how it will work and right. very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Dr. Valerie Roosh, a thoracic surgeon from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center who visited Syracuse recently for a lecture at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, if there's a medical emergency in flight and you're a doctor, should you respond on Upstate's HealthLink on Air? Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Perhaps you've been on an airplane when the pilot or the flight attendant seeks medical assistance from any doctors on board or any passengers with medical training. An upstate professor recently published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in which he addresses what a person should do if he or she hears such a request. With me today is Dr. Greg Eastwood, a professor of bioethics and humanities and of medicine at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Eastwood. Nice to be back here, Amber. Thank you. Well, thanks uh, again. Uh, why did you write this article? Well, I think I have in common with many physicians the experience of flying in a plane and having this kind of request, except I've had that experience seven times, which I think is a little <laughs> more than, than the usual dose of, uh, of such experiences. So I began to think about it and look into it, and uh, there are several articles in, the, in very reputable journals that talk about the facts of uh, in-flight medical emergencies, such as how often they occur, which... It's hard to get an exact number, but it may be one out of 600 or so flights. Uh, and what kinds of emergencies there are. It's the usual things, such as shortness of breath and, and uh, fainting, things like pain somewhere, uh, with the addition of sometimes uh, trauma related to in-flight turbulence. But then I didn't find uh, any articles specifically on what to do, what should one do as a physician or a healthcare professional? A lot of things go through your mind. You know, am I the only one who's going to respond? You know, this turns out to be kind of a spectacle when a doctor responds. So I thought I would just give it some thought and, um, and write about it and 
see what happened, see what came back. Well, neat. Yeah, because there's no way of knowing how many times, how many doctors are on a flight mm -hmm. and how many of them respond or how frequently. So That's true. Uh, you know when they do respond, but you don't know when they don't when respond. They don't. Exactly, who's <laughs> right. sitting there quietly. And it turns out that the literature, the medical literature, does speak to that issue uh, in about half of the responses a physician is involved, uh, sometimes a nurse, uh, fewer than half, maybe a quarter, sometimes an emergency medical technician. When you add all this up, uh, there's a pretty good chance that there's somebody on board who has some medical training. Now, the currency of that medical training is another ma matter. How comfortable does a physician like myself? You know, I've been in administrative duties for almost 30 years. Um, do I feel comfortable getting up and, and doing something about it? Right. Well, and you also mentioned that it becomes a bit of a spectacle. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's a challenge to provide medical care on an airplane. It's a challenge to do anything on an airplane, but yes, to is. provide care for someone. Yes. What are some of the other issues? Well, uh, in like, my experience of mm -hmm. seven instances, six of which I've been the only person responding. The last one, thank goodness there were other people. It was on a uh, flight to China, in fact, mm. several years ago. Well, uh, you know, patients, the patients, I'm calling them, they're passengers who are in distress, of course, are sitting in, uh, in very cramped quarters. You can't do a proper physical examination. Uh, you can't disrobe. I mean, it's, uh, it may be a bit of a spectacle if you do disrobe the, the, the patient. Uh, but it's very difficult to get at what the problem is sometimes in a physical way. Also, sometimes patients aren't able to give a good history, a good account of what's going on. If they're with somebody that knows them, sometimes that's very helpful. And then I've, I've noticed that when I'm listening for heart sounds or abdominal sounds or trying to take blood pressure, the ambient noise of the jets and the passing air uh, really interferes, and it's very difficult Makes to Makes it hear. really hard, hard conditions. And then, you know, if the patient needs to have uh, CPR, you know, mm -hmm. uh, cardiac, external cardiac massage and so on, um, that is really difficult. How do you get a passenger out into the aisleway or up to the front? Uh, it has been done. I thankfully have not had to do that. Wow. Well, do doctors and other medical professionals have a legal duty to respond when a flight attendant asks for help? Yeah, that's a really good question. In the United States and Canada and in Britain, there is no legal duty to do that. In some other countries of Europe and around the world, there is a legal duty uh, if one is a physician. I don't frankly know how that legal duty is expressed because if someone does not respond, it's most physicians do not declare themselves as physicians when they are they on board. They don't it's, walk around with a white no, coat. No, that's or, right, or a right. stethoscope around the corner, okay. their neck. And um, in the seven times uh, I've been involved, not once has an attendant or anyone else asked me for any credentials. I've said, I'm a doctor. That's great. Get to work. <laughs> wow. Well, what about um, moral duty to act? Yeah, that's the, uh, that was really one of the main points of my article. Uh, and it gets it resolves to how physicians feel about themselves as physicians when they're not quotes on duty. 
clearly a doctor's a doctor when he or she is seeing a patient in a certain context, in the office, in a clinic, in a hospital, emergency department, so on. But when you're in an airplane at 35,000 feet, maybe going on vacation or maybe not, maybe to a meeting, doesn't matter, are you a doctor then? Actually, most physicians feel they are physicians virtually all the time. And I find that very reassuring. Then it resolves to, well, if I'm a doctor all the time, can I really help? Uh, in my own situation, I was president here at Upstate for a long time, off and on. I was away doing other things. Uh, as I said earlier in the broadcast, I have not had the main responsibility of taking care of patients for almost 30 years. Yet, four of those seven instances have occurred during that time. And I felt, maybe with a little bit of hubris, that I, that I could take care of the immediate situation. So, uh, yes, I feel that it's my duty, uh, my moral duty, ethical duty, to do what I can. And of course, to defer to a nurse, uh, EMT, another physician, who might be better qualified if they're available. Well, in at least six of your instances, you were the only one that came forward anyway. So That's correct. I don't know who else was sitting there <laughs> thankful <laughs> that I had responded. Okay. But by the same token, I mean, there may be a doctor who's going on vacation, maybe has been drinking. Yes, yes. So maybe they might be reluctant to offer up. Yes. This is related to this the most recent question, when are you a doctor when you're not? Now, can doctors drink uh, wine or beer or, or mixed drinks in the air? Of course. Uh, I always have, of course, I'm not a big drinker anyway, but uh, I've always felt that uh, I should not drink so much that I really impair my abilities to think and act. That doesn't just apply to the plane <laughs> in okay. my own case. Well, do the airlines have some responsibility to be prepared for medical emergencies? Well, they do, as you might guess they do. And what they do, I think, is reassuring. First, the attendants are required to learn and refresh their skills in uh, CPR. Uh, also, they learn how to use the AED, which is the Automated External Defibrillator, which we find in buildings and all over the place. And the airlines have <laughs> and those? And they have those on okay. the planes. Then there are medical kits that have simple things like bandages, and also they have some medications uh, like aspirin and uh, some breathing medications. They have IV solutions. Uh, they don't have insulin and they don't have narcotics, but they have some simple things like ibuprofen and so on. Um, what is most reassuring to me as a physician, and I hope to other physicians and healthcare professionals, is that there is immediate access to experts on the ground. And this I, I have experienced in one or two of my uh, situations where uh, the attendant will connect me by phone to somebody on the ground, to some group of, they're usually emergency doctors who have contracted with the airlines to provide this kind of advice. And so uh, you've really got somebody there who knows what they're doing, even if you don't think you do. So you can at you least tell them what's going on exactly. with the patient and what mm -hmm. tools you might or might not have at your disposal and they can offer. That's it. Uh, in one situation where I had to uh, ask that the plane be brought down, that was only once out of the seven experiences I've had. It was a transcontinental U.S. flight. Uh, I spoke with the pilot. 
Uh, of course, you speak with a pilot, not in person, he's barricaded, but you speak with him on the phone. And then I spoke with the person, the emergency doctor on the ground somewhere. And uh, it was very evident that the plane had to be landed. Okay. Well, do you think the responsibilities are different for physicians on an airplane than they would be like in an auditorium or on the side of the road? Mm -hmm. So in my article, I address this and I say something like many physicians, when they're in a public environment, such as at a lecture or a church, uh, it may go through their mind. What would I do if there were a need for my services? Uh, I found this actually fairly common when I talked to, to physicians. And there's, so there's a commonality uh, among medical emergencies that occur in church, in an auditorium, at a concert, in a restaurant, and in a plane. But the big difference in a plane is that is a closed environment where nobody else is going to get to you for a long time. And if there is a need for emergency medical assistance, it's there in the plane or not. Uh, on the ground, we all know that EMTs respond within minutes. Uh, but in a plane, it's it, if the plane has to come down, it's a half hour or so. Yeah, at least to, mm -hmm. to find where well, to Well, if, if you're over uh, the ocean, yeah. it's a long time. Well, what sorts of responses have you, because this article was in JAMA um, a month about two, ago. About so, two weeks ago, yeah, okay. two and a half weeks ago, yeah. So what, what's the response been so, like? So it's really been gratifying. You know, I'm in academia, and I have published a lot of things. I have never had such a response as this. I've received uh, almost 50 emails, uh, mostly from people I don't know. And they, every one of them, not one of them has been critical. Of course, maybe if they're critical of the article, they'll be quiet. But every one of them says, oh, great job. Dr. Eastwood, um, I can relate to this, and many of them will recount for several paragraphs their own experiences in responding to in-flight emergencies. And I've established some, you know, temporary relationships anyway with people, anyway with some of these people who have, uh, you know, told me that I've responded back and so on. And then maybe out of that 50, there have been seven or eight people that uh, I have known from somewhere around the country, and they have uh, responded. It's nice to renew their, their acquaintance. So you chose a very relatable topic. I think so, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about your conclusion. Um, how should a medical person decide whether he or she will respond in a given situation? Well, my conclusion in the article might be a little bit too clever, but uh, I, I say something like this. Uh, I'd like to apply a version of the golden rule, which means if you have an emergency, if you imagine yourself as a physician having a medical emergency in the air and someone with your own abilities uh, responds and you are worried about that, then maybe you should stay seated. But all others... Press the button. Press the button and go. Yes. Well, thank you. This has been a very fun topic. My guest has been Dr. Greg Eastwood, Professor of Bioethics and Humanities and of Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up how keeping foreigners out makes sense, or 
Viva la différence. Well, folks, about 20 years or so ago, a relatively new field of, of psychology emerged, evolutionary psychology. Basically, evolutionary psychologists theorize and test hypotheses that the brain and the mind, through random genetic mutation, developed by enhancing the survival of certain members of the species with the aforementioned mutated genes, which resulted in improved adaptation to the environment and thus a greater chance of reproduction and survival of the species. Woo! That's a mouthful and a brainful. Should I keep going? Okay, furthermore, the brain and its connected sensory organs at the most primary level work by telling the difference between A and B. Light and dark, for instance, or hot and cold, or tasty to our brain and its attached body needing salt and fat and sweet-tasting carbs versus disgusting as a signal of potential poison. Without the ability to tell the difference between these primary sensory experiences, we would all have been dead many eons ago from falling off cliffs in the dark or from freezing to death or from starvation or poisoning. Now, evolutionary neuroscience tells us that our brain has three levels which developed one after the other over millions and millions of years. The first and most basic level is the reptilian brain with our most basic drive to survive by fighting, fleeing, or freezing when it detects dangerous threats, such as lions. We're going to skip over level two because it isn't relevant to this checkup, and I can see that my producer is going to kill me if I go on too long, and I want to survive. So, level three, the primate brain, with the drive to work cooperatively in groups for the added survival advantage and the ability to collect data and overrule the reptilian brain's snap judgments when it's too hasty and could keep potentially useful group members out of the group needlessly. Why is this important in our everyday lives in 2016? Because if we are able to recognize our ancient drives and feelings from the oldest reptilian parts of our brains, and make common sense of that info with the evolutionarily newest brain areas, the primate brain, with its delaying, data-collecting, executive decision-making prefrontal cortex, we have a greater chance of survival and development personally and collectively as a group. Can you give us an example or some data doctor checkup, you might ask, if your prefrontal cortex just can't make sense of all of this yet? Sure, Dr. Neckup says cooperatively. Research shows that in mere thousandths of a second, our brain, no matter if it's in a white body or a brown body or a yellow body, senses that someone is of the same or a different race than us and if the difference is different or strange enough, the reptilian brain sends a fight, flight, or freeze command. Now, this doesn't make us racist, just a human tell the difference between this and that person.
This discriminating between races makes sense if we realize that millions of years ago, back in the African savanna, we had to know if someone approaching us and our tribe was from the same tribe, and thus safe, and not a threat to our survival. People whose brains were able to detect these differences and were more likely to survive, thus could reproduce and pass on their genes. What makes us racist is if we disregard our more civilized, primate brain's prefrontal cortex's ability to suspend the reptilian brain's automatic survival stereotyping response while we look for evidence of whether that stereotype is true or not. That is, is that person who looks different necessarily a murder or murderer or a terrorist? Put another way, how do we overcome the unfortunate racist stereotypes from our reptilian brain, which makes sense to our reptilian brain? We need to employ our prefrontal cortex to check if there is any real threat from this superficially different person of a different race, or might we welcome him or her through the gated walls of our encampments to enhance our own functioning personally and our entire team with his or her different resources? I'm Dr. Rich. Viva la différence, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, the Healing Muse Literary Journal celebrates Volume 17. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Healing Muse is the annual journal of literary and visual art published by Upstate's Center for Bioethics and Humanities. Here to talk about the new volume 17 is editor Deirdre Nealon, along with two authors whose poems are published in this volume. They're both fourth-year medical students, Ben Casola and Giordano Gilman. Welcome to all three of you. Thank Thanks you. Thank you. So, dear Danielan, um, you share something from the Healing Muse every week at the end of HealthLink on Air, whether it's a poem or a passage from a short story. We like it because it provides sort of a thoughtful way to end the show. Um, but let's share with listeners why it is that a medical university supports a journal of literary and visual art. Oh, sure. Thanks, Amber. I love to talk about uh, Upstate University being the kind of medical university that says reflection is important. Uh, so many of our students and residents and interns undergo amazingly dramatic experiences. And writing is a way for them to process, order, figure out what happened, how they feel. And I think as we'll see in this interview, we have two uh, shining examples of how 
what they see gets translated into something that the rest of us then can see. And it makes um, that circle of healing, I think, all the more possible and real for people. So tell me what the um, Deering Writing Award is. Oh, there was a professor here many, many years ago named Bruce Deering, and he was the president, actually, of Harper, what was called Harper University, Binghamton now, the SUNY Binghamton campus. And he was a lifelong believer in medicine and the arts being joined together. And after his retirement, SUNY pre uh, presidents are allowed to pick a place that they would like to go and do further research. And he chose the medical university and asked his colleagues in the College of Medicine if they would be interested in talking about writing, coming to groups, maybe sitting down and doing some writing. And that uh, translated into when he died, his friends thought it would be good to found a writing award that would encourage all of our students, and I don't mean just medical students, our nursing students, our College of Health-Related Profession students, and even the College of Graduate students have written for us, everybody to try and think about, are there things that are happening in my life that I might want to write down? Neat, neat. And so this year, um, both Ben and Jordana are recipients of yes, this award. Yes, they both won, and I think you'll see when they read why it captured our judges' attention. Okay, well, Jordana, um, you're a Rochester native who went to Cornell for your undergraduate, and you say you've wanted to be a doctor for almost as long as you can remember. Mm -hmm. So tell us how you work writing into your medical education. Well, I don't sit down and think, I'm going to write a poem today or I'm going to write an essay today. Um, I live and then I say, wow, a poem just happened to me. <laughs> and uh, I usually end up writing most of my drafts just on the notepad on my phone or on the notepad that I'm using to interview patients that day. And they're usually very quickly written. They just fall out. Um, I'm not sure if anyone here has had that experience, but <laughs> they just fall out. And um, it's not so much a conscious process, but it is cathartic. And it helps me to realize really what's going on emotionally in the midst of my very hectic medical education. Neat. Well, your poem in this um, Healing Muse is called Balloons, A Short Story. Um, I'd like for you to tell us sort of the background of what happened that inspired you to write about this. I was working on the oncology floor at Upstate uh, as a third year medical student, which is a very stressful and confusing time in one's medical education. You have a lot of knowledge, but you also lack a lot of knowledge. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out where I fit into the healthcare team and how I fit into my patients' lives. And there was this, you'll, as you'll hear in the poem, there was a nurse who walked by holding a bouquet of balloons that appeared to have come out from someone else's room. And she handed them to me and she said, give these to someone who would like them. And it was a very awkward moment because there was a big question in the air of where those balloons had come from. Had someone left the hospital after getting well or had someone left the hospital uh, the other way? And on the oncology floor, it could really be both. So I sort of stood limply in the hallway holding these balloons and another nurse walked by a few seconds later and said, what are you doing with those? Like, basically you look like a fool and you can't <laughs> give those to another patient. Um, and she took out her nurse scissors, as every good nurse will have scissors on her, <laughs> and uh, she sniffed those balloons and uh, 
I just felt so deflated as those balloons ran out of air. So uh, it really highlights the confusion of being a third year medical student and trying to do my best, but just sometimes failing miserably. Well, now that you've got another year passed, do you think you would have handled that situation differently with in the year that you've had since then? Or do you think it would still have sort of a profound impact? I like to think that I've evolved a little bit, but sometimes these uh, instants of, of human interaction are confusing and uh, working in the moment and doing your best in the moment can be a little bit harder than in hindsight. So I can't say that I would have done better, but I know that my patient care has gotten better and I'm a lot more mm -hmm. confident in, in treating patients. Well, would you read the poem for us? Yes, this is yes. called Balloons, A Short Story. On the cancer ward, a nurse walked by with a bouquet of partially inflated mylar balloons that read, get well soon. She left them with me and told me to give them to someone who would like them. I stood there with the limp balloons, barely buoyant in the hallway air. A different nurse walked by. I asked her if she knew anyone who would like them. She looked at me with mild disgust, asked if the balloons were from another patient's room. I thought so. So she pulled out her scissors, arched her brows, pursed her lips, quietly snipped the mylar. Deflated, I threw them out. Thank you. That was Jordana Gilman. She's a fourth-year medical student at Upstate. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the Healing Muse editor, Deirdre Nealon, plus two authors, um, Jordana and Ben Casola. So, Ben, you're a Hobart and William Smith College grad, and you say that writing helps you detach and observe your emotions. Um, has that been helpful during your medical training? Yes, especially in psychiatry, you know, uh, poetry and, and other writing can help remove myself from the experience and observe it, and also have an opportunity to share it with others and uh, deepen my the meaning of that moment, even though it, there was a great deal of suffering. So, um, have you faced situations that were difficult emotionally for, for you? And Yes, uh, I think, you know, uh, especially what this poem is based on and throughout dealing with people who've been, who've had great deals of abuse or who have struggled with drug addiction their whole life, you know, uh, those kinds of people, it's very hard to understand what they're going through and by putting myself in their shoes and by writing about it, you know, it, it almost can taper what my reactions might originally be and help me to understand how I might be able to better help and empathize with them. So how do you decide what to write about? Well, it usually doesn't fall out as, uh, you know, you, I mean, in this case, I think it did. It really spurned me to start going at it. Uh, but I think usually I have to force myself to try to get these emotions out. They don't always come easily. And a lot of times it's trying and failing and uh, not giving up that, you know, something didn't turn out the way you wanted and compiling those. And that's what I've tried to do in the past and hope to continue in the future. Well, your poem is about performing CPR and witnessing death. Um, so talk to me about how you processed your emotions from that incident and how you got from the incident um, to the finished product of an 11-line poem. When it, what originally happened was that someone on our burn service uh, was uh, having extreme complications. They were having surgery in the room, 
and their electrolytes were so imbalanced that they were having, they were also, um, their heart was starting to stop and their blood pressure was dropping. And so we took turns doing CPR and that was an honor and it really, you know, was, took a lot more out of me than I expected. But what was uh, quite a privilege was that the person's pulse came back originally and I thought, you know, it's not because of me, but wow, isn't that amazing? I'm so, uh, you know, I'm so excited about this. And, uh, and then eventually, you know, they passed away and I was the last person to have my hands on them. And as their eyes kind of fell open and, you know, looked away, looked at me as the light left them, it almost was as if they were speaking to me and almost as if I felt closer to them and farther from everybody else. And I thought, isn't this an interesting experience? I want to understand it more and I want to dive more deeply into it so I can share it with others. Wow. Well, we typically end our show with a passage from The Healing Muse, and today you've agreed to to read your poem for us. But first, uh, let me ask editor Deidre Nealon a few more questions. Um, Where can people purchase a copy of The Healing Muse? Uh, You can go to our website, thehealingmuse.org, and all the information will be there. Tell me, you get submissions from patients, students, family? All over, Amber. Everybody who's had any kind of experience with healing the body, medicine. Uh, It's amazing. I mean, we've had people who serve as security guards in a um, nursing home who found the copy of the book and thought, well, I'd like to write something about what I see here. So it's it's a great uh, opportunity, as we've heard from Jordana and Ben, for people to understand that your physicians, your nurses, all of the technicians, they are feeling deeply what is happening to you. And sometimes medicine's so fast-paced, you might not think that's true. But it's very obvious to me as I meet these writers, they're processing deeply. You, you heard Ben use the word privilege, um, humbled. It's, they do feel that medicine gives them such an opportunity to be of use. It's quite, quite humbling for us. So if someone listening to this program is interested in a submission... Um, what, how would they learn? Oh, uh, yes, anybody can submit to The Healing Muse. You go to our website and you'll find the information there. We're using uh, a website called submittable.com, and that's a very easy way for you to uh, upload your artwork, your uh, essay, whatever, and send it to us. And you'll hear from us within three months as to whether or not um, it's accepted. And we'd lo- we love to hear from people from all over. So I think in this issue we have 31 states that are represented in five different countries. And this so being the 17th the year? The 17th year, yeah. So it's, it's growing all the time. We uh, have a hard time keeping up with everything, but um, there's special, obviously, consideration given to central New York people. We love to see them. Uh, special consideration to upstate people, but everybody, as you'll see in the table of contents, all around the world. Well, let me thank um, both fourth-year medical students Ben Casola and Jordana Gilman and the Healing Muse editor Deirdre Nealon for speaking with me today. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And here now is Ben Casola and his poem, Staying Alive. Thank you. Staying Alive. You're not pushing hard enough. Crack, crack. His pulse returned to be lost like a love note. His last breath couldn't escape the plastic tubes within. He spoke through them with one word whose cardinal grasp left me motionless for a week. Please. This 
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink, we'll look at the benefits of running and learn about the hunger hormone ghrelin. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.